Welcome to Role Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 109 The Best Game Modules, Published Adventures of All Time, from you, Part 2. Last week, we kicked off our look at the best published adventures of all time as determined by you. And we didn't even get a third of the way through the list, so I'm not going to do much of an intro this week so that we've got more time to cover that list. We'll kick off today's show with a nod to our friends in the United Kingdom. Module U1, The Sinister Secret of Salt Marsh, was written by Dave J. Brown and Don Turnbull and focused on beginning AD&D characters going from level 1 to level 3. The three modules in the U series were designed and developed in the UK, and while the other two sold well, this is the adventure that stood the test of time. The Sinister Secret of Saltmarsh, released in 1981, was a 32-page booklet and outer folder. It also had large-scale maps, and the detail in the booklet laid out a full background for the adventure and very well-detailed descriptions of the encounters. The U-Series was rather unique in the D&D adventure pantheon, not only for its home of creation, but also for the fact that it was one of the first, if not the first, to feature primarily underwater adventures. And while it hasn't been reprinted like many of the other adventures we've covered in this rundown up to this point, you can find it on the DM's Guild. That being said, Wizards of the Coast did produce an adventure that's similar to this one, titled Ghosts of Saltmarsh for 5th edition. And while they are similar, there are enough differences to safely call them different. Also, for those D&D Online players, an adaptation of this module, updated for 5th edition rules, dropped for the game in 2021. Let's get into the plot. First things first, the sinister secret of Saltmarsh is set in the Greyhawk setting, which was basically the default setting for AD&D for quite a long period of time. Basically, the group is tasked with figuring out what the secret of a haunted house in the town of Saltmarsh is, and since the house once belonged to an evil alchemist, you know there's going to be shenanigans. After that, the group needs to deal with a ghostly ship as well as the crew on board. I know I made it a point to mention the underwater adventure part of this in my description, and that does play a part in all of this, especially in the ghostly ship portion of the adventure. Let's check out what the reviewers had to say. Jim Bambra reviewed it for the November 1982 issue of White Dwarf. He gave it a 9 out of 10 rating, but did have a problem with the provided first level characters having magic items, noting, quote, I fail to see how this can be justified, as the module is not difficult enough to warrant the bestowal of magic before play even begins. Magic items should be found by players as treasure and not come as handouts from the GM, end quote. Overall, he said that, quote, TSR UK are to be congratulated on their first module. This series should prove to be interesting and entertaining, end quote. The Sinister Secret of Saltmarsh was ranked at 27 in the Dungeon Magazine poll from 2004. And in a retrospective review, Ken Denmead of the Wired website called it one of the top 10 D&D modules I found in storage this weekend. He called it, quote, the Scooby-Doo episode of D&D modules. Instead of a good old dungeon crawl, players got to explore a big old spooky house and deal with all sorts of wandering monsters as well as traps and illusions, end quote. As I said moments ago, the Sinister Secret of Saltmarsh can be purchased in PDF form from the DM's Guild. 
Now I'm going to cheat a little bit for the next entry on the list as it's not one module, but a special release that has three from the same series, but there's a damn good reason for it. Module G1 through G3, Against the Giants, was written by Gary Gygax and released in 1981. But that's not the original release year for the three adventures that make this up. Module G1, titled Steading of the Hill Giant Chief, was the first adventure module published by TSR, and it came out in 1978. Next up was G2, Glacial Rift of the Frost Giant Jarl, that same year, and later in 1978 came G3, Hall of the Fire Giant King. Over the years, Gygax reported he'd written and released the three adventures so he could take a break between writing and releasing the AD&D Monster Manual, which dropped in 1977, and the Player's Handbook, which actually also released in 1978. Art for the three was handled by David C. Sutherland III, David A. Trampier, Bill Willingham, Jeff D., David S. LaForce, and Errol Otis. As you'd expect from a Gygax adventure, Against the Giants was set in the Greyhawk setting, and they were meant for groups level 8 through 12. I should also note that these three adventures link up with three from the D series and one from the Q series, and I'm not going to get into those here because some of them will pop up on the show later on. This module clocked in at 32 pages long with two outer folders. It also gets the honor of being the first time the drow appeared in an adventure, specifically in the Hall of the Fire Giant King portion of the adventure. Against the Giants found itself revised and reprinted as a part of the 1986 release, Queen of the Spiders, which is a 128-page super module. There was also a re-release of sorts in 1999 to celebrate TSR's 25th anniversary. Against the Giants, the liberation of Joff included adventures that expanded upon the materials of the original three adventures. Portions of Against the Giants saw reprint or reuse through the third and fourth editions of D&D, but the module as a whole didn't get a revision until 2017 when it was updated for fifth edition and released in the Tales from the Yawning Portal supplement. So, if you're looking for the original release, your options are pretty much limited to DriveThruRPG and the DMs Guild. If you want to play it for 5th edition, you can grab a copy of Tales from the Yawning Portal at your local game shop. Alright, time to check out the plot. As you'd expect from a Gygax adventure, this is set in the Greyhawk setting, and in another Gygax hallmark, they're all basically dungeon crawls. One final background note is that each adventure covers one of the evil giants in the game system. Yeah, alright, I lied. I got one more. Gygax designed each of the three adventures to either be run separately or together. Okay, plot time now. I'm serious. I'm going to split it up into the individual modules. Steading of the Hill Giant Chief is where we start, and it gets the prologue for the series. In that, it's noted that different giant types have been raiding human lands, so the leaders of those humans decided to hire an adventuring party to shell out some retribution or justice. That party is the PCs, and they're specifically on the hook for beating the giants. Otherwise, off with their heads. However, they aren't complete jerks. They're given weapons, horses, and maps of the area. They're also told they can keep whatever spoils they find. There are two basic locales for this adventure, and both are the Hill Giants Fortress, the upper level, and the dungeon. And to set the group up for the next adventure, they find a map for the glacial rift of the Frost Giant Jarl, as well as a magic chain that will transport the group there immediately. 
I mentioned that these adventures can be run individually, so if Glacial Rift of the Frost Giant Jarl is the adventure being run by itself, the magic chain doesn't exist. Instead, it's basically a repeat of the prologue, but shortened, and the group's hired to take them out. Much like the previous adventure, this one has two primary locations, the upper area of caves and the rift floor, and the lower area that's full of natural caverns. The group has a lot of monster and giant challenges, and at the end they encounter a magic lever that they can pull to be transported into the next adventure. And much like with the last one, Hall of the Fire Giant King can be played separately. If it is, the group's hired to take out the fire giants. I think you're seeing a pattern here. When compared to the previous two, this module's a big one. It's 16 pages long, while the others were 8 pages each. It also has three primary locations, a level with the Queen's Room, a level with items of spiritual interest, and the lower level, which has a red dragon. It's on this level that the group encounter the drought, so in order to see them, the group had to play this particular module. And for those who are playing the entire long-form adventure, there's a tunnel at the end that allows the group to head off for the adventure in Module D1, which was Descent into the Depths of the Earth. Hey, by now, you figured out the format for each of these entries, so you know I've got reviews. First things first, let's check where Against the Giants rated on the Dungeon Magazine Greatest Adventure list in 2004. It came in at number one, but that gets an asterisk attached to it because it made the list as a part of the combined release Queen of the Spiders, which included the three D-series modules in the line and the Q1. And like I said, we'll talk about those later. Kurt Butterfield reviewed Hall of the Fire Giant King in the October 1981 issue of The Space Gamer. He said, quote, The scenario is well thought out and nicely detailed, end quote. He added, quote, It includes some intriguing special instructions given for deviously playing several of the intelligent inhabitants of the dungeon, end quote. He concluded by saying, quote, I advise all DMs who are looking for an exciting, worthwhile adventure for their players to pick this one up, you won't be disappointed, end quote. Anders Svensson reviewed Against the Giants for the February 1982 issue of Different Worlds. He had a number of complimentary things to say about the module, summarizing that, quote, Against the Giants is a solid adventure. This would be a worthwhile purchase, end quote. Moving along on our list, we've got I-1, Dwellers of the Forbidden City. Written by David Cook and released in 1981 for groups level 4 through 7, it was set in the Greyhawk setting. It's also had an interesting road on the way to being published. Dwellers of the Forbidden City was originally created to be used in tournament play at Origins in 1980. It was revised based on the feedback from the convention before it was released. And while that was fairly normal at the time, the interesting thing is that it wasn't originally supposed to have that designation I-1. It was originally supposed to be a part of the S series with the number S-4. However, that idea was abandoned for the module we're covering next on the list, so Dwellers got to be the first release in another series. That also required a few adjustments to the module itself, but they were mostly cosmetic. Dwellers of the Forbidden City clocks in at 32 pages along with an outer folder and boasts art from Errol Otis, James Holloway, Jim Rosloff, Harry Quinn, and Stephen D. Sullivan. This was also one of the first adventures written by Cook, who D&D fans would better know by his nickname, Zeb. Zeb Cook would go on to become the lead designer for the second edition of AD&D. 
This adventure is also noteworthy for presenting a species of monster that has continued to thrive throughout the various editions of the game, the Yuan-Ti, or Wan-Ti. I call them Yuan-Ti, that's where we're going to go. These nasties have continued to antagonize players up to this very day, and they proved to be so popular after this release that they got expanded when the Forgotten Realms supplement was released later on down the line. Even though the Yuan-Ti came out of Dwellers of the Forbidden City and had a long life, the module itself did not. It hasn't been adapted to any other version of the game and was allowed to go out of print with the release of AD&D 2nd Edition. So if you're interested in grabbing a copy for yourself, it's the usual sources of DriveThruRPG.com and the DM's Guild. Oh, and after last week's episode, I got a few notes asking me why I'm promoting the DM's Guild for this list. It's a simple answer. The DM's Guild is going to tend to have pretty much any supplement produced for any edition of D&D on it, so when I go looking for them, that's where I tend to start. Of course, I also mentioned DriveThruRPG.com because, well, they also tend to have damn near anything. Consider it free plugs, I guess. They're welcome. Dwellers of the Forbidden City kicks off with the PCs getting reports of bandits attacking caravans in a jungle region. They, the bandits, gotta use pronouns, have killed many of the merchants and guards they've attacked, but those who have survived tell tales of deformed plants and deadly beasts in the jungle. That being said, it's the stolen loot that works as the hook for the group to get into the game at this point. As one would expect from anything coming from Zeb Cook, the adventure has a good blend of action and intrigue for the players, and it brings the Yanti in as a formidable opponent. While there were some great reviews for this module, there were more that weren't quite as favorable. Jerry Klug reviewed it for the January 1982 issue of Ares Magazine. He said simply, quote, TSR has set a standard in the RPG community with which they try to keep up with. If Dwellers of the Forbidden City is any indication of what is coming, they may not live up to their own standards. E. Gary Gygax, where are you? End quote. Jim Bambra's review in the April 1983 issue of White Dwarf probably explains the two conflicting camps of opinion about the module the best. He gave it an overall rating of 5 out of 10, but he split that up a bit. He gave the presentation an 8 out of 10, but noted it was, quote, hastily thrown together, end quote. He rated playability and enjoyment at 5 out of 10, and skill and complexity at 6 out of 10. One of the notable phrases he used during these breakdowns was that it was, quote, very mundane, end quote. He also said it, quote, lacks any real cohesion, end quote. He noted that the first part of the adventure was what had been used for the tournament it premiered in, and the second part was added for the release. His actual words towards the second part was that it was, quote, tacked on, end quote. Overall, he said it was, quote, just not worth considering, end quote. Now, all of that being said, Dungeon Magazine ranked Dwellers of the Forbidden City at 13 on their list of the greatest D&D adventures of all time in 2004. The editors of the magazine raved over it, and one wonders if maybe it was the nostalgia for a then 20-plus-year-old adventure that played into that ranking. All right, since Dwellers of the Forbidden City didn't get that S4 designation, which module did? I wanted to mention before I name this that this was the most requested adventure for me to cover on this list, which kind of surprised me. Not that it's a poor adventure by any stretch of the imagination, I just figured a few of the others, some of which we'll get to later, would have been number one. Just goes to show what I know, I, I guess. 
Okay, and I'm going to warn you, I'm going to blow this name, so just stay with me. Module S4, The Lost Caverns of Sjönkamp, close enough, was written by Gary Gygax and released by TSR in 1982. It was set in Greyhawk, naturally, and scaled for parties level 6 to 10. Much like many of the Gygax adventures, Lost Caverns was originally written for a convention. In this case, it was WinterCon 5 in 1976. WinterCon was a convention sponsored by the Metro Detroit Gamers. The adventure is based at least in part on a dungeon level designed by Rob Kuntz. And of course, Kuntz then helped Gygax down the line, revising the tournament edition for publishing. Fun fact, this original version was eight pages, an outer folder, and a Ziploc bag, and only a couple of hundred copies were ever printed. By the way, that was quite normal for tournament games then, and kind of still is now, at least for those where the players were allowed to keep the materials. And according to all of the reports over the years, there was a lot of revising going on along the way to press. In fact, Gygax himself admitted on more than one occasion that the final product was very different from the version he'd run back in 1976. He stated in the May 1980 issue of Dragon that, quote, Rob Kuntz has the reworked Lost Caverns module which must be finalized. We want to get it into print as soon as possible, end quote. According to multiple sources, the original idea was to release Lost Caverns as a bridge between T1-T4, which was the Temple of Elemental Evil, and WG4, the Forgotten Temple of Tharizdun. But since Lost Caverns was finished well before the others were ready, they decided to bump it into the S4 slot and close out that series with it. Now, at the risk of going too deep into the woods, I wanted to expand just a bit more on this development process. Gygax really got working on the revision of Lost Caverns in 1980, as he wanted it specifically for the first edition of AD&D. That being said, with the workload he had at the time, something had to give. And that meant the Temple of Elemental Evil got bumped for the moment. Now, that wasn't the only module that got bumped, but Lost Caverns definitely changed the course of published adventures for TSR for several years, and that's not hyperbole. When released, it had two 32-page books and an outer folder. The revisions didn't stop with the release, though, as it got an update for inclusion in the 1987 super module Realms of Horror. It also got itself a 3.5 update and was included in Igwilv's Legacy, The Lost Caverns of Chonkenth. And I know I'm screwing that name up again, but I'm sorry, I'm doing the best I can. Various portions of the module popped up over the years in multiple supplements from TSR and Wizards of the Coast. The entire S-Series got a final official release in 2013. They were a part of the hardcover Dungeons of Dread, and I saw a lot of copies of that release online. At the time of this release, Lawrence Schick wrote the foreword to the book that, quote, S4, The Lost Caverns of Shankanth, marked the end of the S-Series, and rightly so because despite being based on a gilded whole dungeon originally designed for a tournament in 1976, its updated version really belonged more to the 80s campaign setting school of design than to the wild and woolly 70s. S1 through S3 were standalone modules that could easily be dropped into any DM's campaign, but Shonkenth is firmly based in Gary's World of Greyhawk." End quote. And before you go to at me, I'm not saying any of this to dog the adventure. I'm just reporting it because I found it interesting. So nothing but love for the work here, folks, okay? 
The adventure itself begins with instructions that the DM is instructed to read to the players. They outline the fact that there's a treasure in the Yatil Mountains, south of the realm of Perrinland. The PCs are then tasked with investigating rumors of a lost treasure that numbers of adventurers have died trying to find. The Archmage Igwilv was the original owner of the treasure, and getting to that treasure is at least as challenging as getting away with it. The encounters range from giants to trolls to a vampire, so the variety will certainly challenge the PCs. Overall, the critics seem to really like Lost Caverns. Jim Bamber covered it in the April 1983 issue of White Dwarf. He gave it an overall 9 out of 10 and specifically noted that it was, quote, very tough, end quote. He praised Gygax's work, especially after the period of time he'd been out of the adventure writing part of the business. He also had a ton of positive things to say about the new monsters and magic included in the adventure. Lawrence Schick took a look back at the adventure in his 1991 book, Heroic Worlds. He noted it as, quote, a monster-filled labyrinth in the classic mode. Kill them, rob them, and leave, end quote. And Lost Caverns ranked number 22 on the Dungeon Magazine list of the greatest D&D adventures of all time. If you're looking for an original version of the adventure, and I mean a 1982 original, you know your options, DMs Guild, Drive-Thru RPG. We head back into the B series of modules with our next entry. B4, The Lost City, was written by Tom Moldvay and released in 1982. Jim Holloway gets the art credit for this, and this release was a 32-page book with an outer folder. Also, the very first printing of the module was three-hole punched for those DMs who used three-ring binders for all their game stuff. Later printings weren't hole punched and were instead stapled, as was the new standard. The Lost City never got a true revision from either TSR or Wizards of the Coast. Dragon Magazine did do a revisit of the setting with their piece Mistara, Return to the Lost City, in issue 315. It was the stated inspiration for the third edition adventure Mask of Dreams, which was released in the January 2007 issue of Dungeon. That being said, our new friends at Goodman Games made The Lost City the fourth entry in their licensed series. Original Adventures Reincarnated, The Lost City, was released in July of 2020. As is the standard with this line, the original is faithfully reprinted in the guide, along with a fuller fleshing out of the areas that were, in the company's opinion, neglected. It also has a revision for the fifth edition of D&D. So if you're looking for a physical copy, that release would be the one to try. It is available at your local game shop, so I'd drop in and check it out. The adventure concerns a city buried in the desert, and for those keeping score at home, that desert is in the Mistara setting. Two warring factions basically control the area, and the PCs get into this by getting lost in a sandstorm and stumbling into a pyramid entrance. They work their way through the various levels of that pyramid and run into a number of evil human characters throughout. And only the upper half of the pyramid is fleshed out and utilized in the adventure. There was just enough information on the lower level provided to allow the DM to flesh it out on their own and continue the adventure to an even greater conclusion. I found one review of The Lost City that was worth using, and it comes from Ken Denmead on the Wired website, December 2007. He said, quote, With this module, things are clearly detailed to a certain point. 
and then the rest is left for the DM to expand the adventure, including a final confrontation with the evil god who helped bring down the civilization and eventual discovery of the remnants of the people living in a strange, drug-addled life of mushroom farming beside a subterranean lake, end quote. It was a part of his top 10 D&D modules I found in storage this weekend article. Speaking of rankings, that 2004 list of the best D&D adventures of all time from Dungeon Magazine ranked The Lost City at number 28. Up next is an adventure that's gotten shout-out after shout-out from gamers throughout the years. N1, Against the Cult of the Reptile God, was written by Douglas Niles and released in 1982. It was designed for AD&D and was intended to be an introductory adventure as it was scaled for levels 1 through 3. Tim Truman gets the art credit and the module weighs in at 32 pages with an outer cover. Now this was the first design for Douglas Niles after he was hired by TSR. He used an old brief to work from and hammered out the finished design in four weeks. One fun fact about the module is that there's a printing error in one of the module maps as there is no exit for the maze near the troglodytes. The history of the creation of the module isn't that long or that interesting, so I'd just as soon spend the time getting into the plot. Insofar as where it's at, it's in the Greyhawk setting, located on the border between the Grand March and the Kingdom of Kaeland in the western Flannas. The PCs show up in the village of Orlane, and they're immediately challenged to find out what's wrong in the village, as some of the citizens are immediately friendly to them, while others are immediately hostile. It turns out Orlane has been messed with by an evil cult, and the job for the adventurers is to stop the cult. And whether you've played this adventure or not, you've probably heard about Explicita Defilus, as they are the reptile god whose lair the group has to go into to complete the mission. Seems like I've been using this particular reviewer a lot, but he seems to be about as balanced as they come. Jim Bambra handled the review for the August 1983 issue of White Dwarf. He gave the module an 8 out of 10. His conclusion was that, quote, low-level adventures are just as interesting as exciting as their high-level encounters, end quote. Doug Cowie reviewed it for the June 1983 issue of Imagine. His review was mixed as he disliked the vagueness of how the party should be introduced to the module itself, as well as a lack of statistics for some of the NPCs. He also called the structure a stereotype. On the plus side, he loved the fact that, quote, the unknown adversaries do not tamely wait for the players to come and get them, end quote. He also praised the great detail that went into the plot and innovative touches, such as the maps. Against the Cult of the Reptile God picked up the number 19 spot on the Dungeon Magazine list of the best D&D adventures of all time in 2004. I mentioned the next adventure on our list a little while back, so let's get into it here. WG4, The Forgotten Temple of Tharadzdun, was written by Gary Gygax for the Greyhawk setting and released in 1982. It was an AD&D design and was scaled for characters level 5 through 10. In a departure from the TSR norm, Karen Nelson, a freelance artist, handled the work for Forgotten Temple, as the TSR design department was up to its ass in artwork for the various modules around this one that were being prepped for release. I mentioned earlier that Forgotten Temple was a loose sequel to Lost Caverns of Shonkenth, so one could run this one right after that one if they so chose. I'm not going to get too much more in depth about this, but I do need to note that while this module was designated WG4, WG1 through WG3 do not exist. 
long story. And when we get into a deep dive about the various series and their designations, we'll just expand on that. Shortly after the release of this adventure, TSR let it be known that there would be a future module that would expand further upon the plot. That adventure never materialized. Many gamers and reviewers over the years have noted the Lovecraftian style of horror in this adventure, and they noted it wasn't the first time that style had been in a published adventure. In fact, the concept of the trapped malevolent god mirrors the great old ones from Lovecraft's writing. One more note before we get into the plot. A copy of the Forgotten Temple of Faridzdun is being held in the collection of the Strong National Museum of Play. So if anyone ever tells you there's no artistic value in gaming, stick that little fact in their pipe and have them smoke it. Anyway, let's look at the adventure. Forgotten Temple picks up where Lost Caverns leaves off as the group finds the temple while tailing fleeing members from the cavern of the previous adventure. The group winds and weaves through a number of mountain passes before they find the temple and they'll find sites of religious rituals, remnants of worshippers, and a number of puzzles to solve in order to complete the needed rituals to complete the mission. And much like Call of Cthulhu, it's entirely possible a character could go insane or die before the end. And since Forgotten Temple can be run separate of Lost Caverns, should it be run that way, the adventure begins with the group being drawn into the adventure by a gnomish community that needs their help. The Forgotten Temple of Tharazdun was number 23 on the 2004 list compiled by Dungeon Magazine. Jim Bambra reviewed it for the August 1983 issue of White Dwarf. He gave it a 9 out of 10, noting that, quote, The temple is brought to life excellently and contains plenty for players to think about. Gaining entry requires good tactical play, and an imaginative approach is needed to fathom out the temple's hidden secrets, end quote. Now, the next spot on this list technically belongs to module I-6, Ravenloft. I say technically belongs, but since I just covered Ravenloft in great detail a couple of months back, rather than rehash that here, I'll just recommend you check out that episode in the archives. Module L2, The Assassin's Knot, is next up. Written by Leonard Len Lakofka and released in 1983, it was designed for first edition AD&D and could either be run in a generic setting or in Greyhawk. The Assassin's Knot was a direct sequel to The Secret of Bone Hill and was intended to be part of a five-module run. Unfortunately, it never quite got there, but that's a story for another show. The Assassin's Knot is another one of those well-liked modules that was not revised for further editions of D&D, so the only way to get it is either through a used game shop or online, sing it along with me, the DMs Guild, or DriveThruRPG.com. In this module, the PCs are tasked with solving the murder mystery of the Baron of Restonford. Evidence points to someone from the town of Garotten, so the group spends time there as well as in the castle itself. The adventure stands out from a majority of the other releases of its time in that there were no dungeon pieces in it, nor any pieces that it could even be considered dungeon-like. This all either takes place in the living space of the castle or in the town itself. And by the way, the PCs are on the clock, because the longer it takes for them to solve the mystery, the more shenanigans take place. Dungeon Magazine put the Assassins not at number 29 on their list of the best adventures. Doug Cowie reviewed it for the June 1984 issue of Imagine. 
He liked the production, calling it, quote, well laid out with clear instructions for the game master, end quote. He did note that there were a lot of typos, and he called that a negative for the release, primarily because, quote, they can from time to time interrupt the flow of gameplay, end quote. Overall, he noted that, quote, this is a good and I like it, end quote. Rick Swan handled the review for the November-December 1984 issue of The Space Gamer. He wasn't very happy with it. He noted that the characters on the cover of the module, quote, looked bored, and the players who take on this adventure had better be ready to join them, end quote. Overall, he called it, quote, a very pedestrian affair, end quote, and, quote, just plain dull, end quote. Our friends in the UK get another adventure on our list. UK 1 Beyond the Crystal Cave was written by British designers Dave J. Brown, Tom Kirby, and Graham Morris and was released in 1983. It was designed for first edition AD&D and set for groups level 4 through 7. One thing that makes this adventure different from the American releases of the time is that it values intelligent resolution to issues over violence. And if we're being honest, that was a theme for pretty much all of the UK modules written for D&D at the time. It took a long time for Beyond the Crystal Cave to get an update for D&D, but it got an update of sorts from another company. Kenzer and company based their 2005 adventure, Porfer's Enchanted Garden, for the Hackmaster game on it, but they wound up having to make wholesale changes due to not getting the approval from Wizards of the Coast in time. This also reduced the focus on roleplay and pushed the action a bit more, and Kenzer Co. kept it UK, with freelance UK writer James Butler handling the duties. Wizards of the Coast finally updated the module in 2011 for 4th edition D&D and added combat situations for their Encounters line of pre-made adventures. Beyond the Crystal Cave has the PCs being hired to save a couple who recently eloped from the Cave of Echoes. Apparently they'd fled there, and a number of secrets must be resolved to not only enter the cave, but make their way to Porfirio's Garden which is a magical place. Again, the focus is on non-violent resolution, and that's actually the only way experience points can be gained in the adventure. Jim Bambro reviewed the module for the December 1983 issue of White Dwarf. He called it, quote, an interesting and thought-provoking adventure, end quote, though he thought the level range should be three through six. He did sell the positive of being, quote, treated to a lot of interesting encounters and puzzles, end quote. Overall, he noted that the module, quote, makes a refreshing change from the more normal combat-oriented venture, for its emphasis is very much on role-playing and problem-solving, end quote. Doug Cowie had his own thoughts in the August 1983 issue of Imagine. Overall, he called it, quote, a good package and urged readers, quote, try it for a relaxing change, end quote. Dragonlance finally makes an appearance on this list. DL1, Dragons of Despair, was written by Tracy Hickman and released in 1984. Designed for first edition AD&D, it was built for levels 4 through 6. Artwork was provided by Clyde Caldwell and Jeff Easley. The module came out seven months before the first Dragonlance novel came out and has the distinction of being the first Dragonlance product ever released. In the months leading up to the release, Dragon Magazine carried teaser advertisements with the Dragonlance logo and the words, Coming soon. This module kicks off the epic series on the world of Kryn, which we'll cover in a future episode, 
We've covered the Dragonlance setting as a whole in a past episode, so if you're interested, check out that show in the archives. Dragons of Despair was a 32-page book with an outer folder. Clyde Caldwell's art consisted of the cover painting of the black dragon Kinsenth fighting three heroes, Goldmoon, Tannis Half-Elven, and Karaman Majari. The adventure itself provides the debut appearances of draconians and gully dwarves, as well as several of the locations that would become favorites throughout the run of the Dragonlance line. And characters. Holy shit does this module introduce characters who'd become either loved or hated, and a ton of them. It'd be easier to mention who wasn't introduced than to mention those who were. Over the years, Tracy Hickman noted his inspiration was to, quote, design a world and a heroic adventure to go with it, end quote. Dragons of Despair got an update for AD&D 2nd Edition, though it was repackaged as one of the three Dragonlance Classics modules. It got a new module code, DLC 1, and had Dragons of Flame, Dragons of Hope, and Dragons of Desolation. That book dropped in 1990. Wizards of the Coast published another revision in 1999 for Dragonlance Classics, 15th Anniversary Edition. A year later, they reprinted the entire DL line exactly as they were when they were originally released, though the module size was smaller. It came in two slipcase sets and Dragons of Despair was in the first volume. When Dragons of Autumn was released for 3.5 edition, much of it corresponds to Dragons of Despair, so one could say that, in spirit anyway, it was a reprint. Since then, however, Dragons of Despair has not seen an official revision. By now, you know the drill if you're interested in picking it up, so I'm not going to mention it again here. Dragons of Despair begins with the PCs gathering in the settlement of Solace after five years of being unsuccessful on their own at finding signs of what are known as true clerics. So they combine their resources to try again, and a series of encounters in the wilderness directs them towards the Blue Crystal Staff, which they're going to need to take to the ancient ruined city of Zak Saroth. When they get there, they encounter the Draconians and they find baby dragons. There be dragons here! They also encounter an ancient black dragon who they chase down a well into a dungeon. The adventure continues from there until they defeat the dragon known as Kithsynth. Steve Hampshire handled the review for the October 1984 issue of Imagine. He stated that he really enjoyed the module and called it, quote, a good value, end quote. His one issue with it was, quote, the rather flowery prose, difficult to read without being laughed down by the players, end quote. I feel your pain, Steve. I feel your pain. Graham Staplehurst did his own review for the December 1984 issue of White Dwarf. He gave it an 8 out of 10 and noted that it was, quote, a very novel atmosphere, end quote. Over the course of this podcast, I've mentioned on more than one occasion the importance of Mordenkainen. For the uninitiated, Mordenkainen isn't just a name on spells in the player's handbook. He's a character that Gary Gygax loved and used often, so it's no surprise that one of his adventures made our list. WG5, Morden Kanan's Fantastic Adventure, was written by Robert J. Kuntz and Gary Gygax and released in 1984. It was a 32-page booklet with an outer folder. It was designed for the Greyhawk setting and built for groups level 9 through 12. Clyde Caldwell and Jeff Eastley handled the artwork for the module. The adventure was based on the campaign Kuntz ran for Gygax and both men worked on it later on. The original version had been written between 1972 and 1973, but this release was the first form of it that actually got published. 
For the record, that earlier version is where Gygax got the inspiration for the Greyhawk setting, so you can either credit it or blame it for that. This adventure not only had Morden Kanan in it, but also brought Urag the Lord, Rigby the Patriarch, and Bigby the Wizard into the fun. Gygax fully acknowledged, though, that the players should feel free to use their own characters. Wizards of the Coast updated the adventure in 2004 for 3.5 edition, and Kuntz worked on it with Eric Mona and James Jacobs, though Gygax did provide a bit of advisory material to the project. The adventure was retitled Mare Castle. It appeared in Dungeon Magazine 112 as the only adventure, which was unique to the magazine at the time. Since then, it hasn't seen an official revision or reprinting, so again, you know where to go if you're looking for it. Now, we've discussed the standard adventure setup for Gary Gygax, and this one's no different. It's a dungeon crawl, with the dungeon being three levels deep. The hook for the characters is that there are a pair of impassable doors found underneath the abandoned Mare Castle. There are rumors they lead to fantastic treasures, and of course, everyone who's tried to get to it have failed. So, RPCs are going to need to take their shot at it. Level 1 isn't overly difficult, as the task of getting the doors opened is considered to be challenging enough. Level 2 has the group encountering human resistance. The final level leads to demon worshippers, human and not, and things end with an encounter with the demon Curzit. Rick Swan reviewed the module for the March-April 1985 issue of The Space Gamer, he noted up front that, quote, the action is nonstop and there is no chance for your attention to wander, end quote. He also said that, quote, this module is a breeze to run and can accommodate any element you wish to add or subtract. Hack and slashers don't come any slicker than this, end quote. He did note that, quote, Morden Kanan has little to offer experienced D&D players, but it is more appropriate for younger, inexperienced players, end quote. Chris Hunter had a different view in his review in the April 1985 issue of Imagine. While it is, quote, a dungeon in the traditional sense, end quote, he criticized it as, quote, the feel of an early generation dungeon, having traps with no real explanation, instant kill encounters, and numerous errors in logic, end quote. He concluded that he, quote, would not use it in a campaign of my own, end quote. Okay, so once again, we're going long on this show. And the next one in line is another one of those multi-module runs. So I think we're going to go ahead and bring this week's tour to a close. We've still got a ton of adventures to cover. So next week, we'll be doing a third show on this subject. And we've still got some pretty juicy ones to cover. In the meanwhile, check out Bad GM's campaign build-along. For those who don't know, that's the show where we build an entire campaign for you from scratch. This season, we're building for the Fallout role-playing game, and even if you're not playing that game, what we're building can be lifted and dropped into pretty much any post-apocalyptic game you want to play. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Role Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod. On Twitter at Bad GMP. YouTube and Tumblr, Bad GM Productions. You can email us, badgmproductions at gmail.com. And online, the website is badgmproductions.net. Next week, we try to finish up our look at the best modules published adventures of all time. 
Will we do it? <laughs> Truth be told, I've got no freaking clue, man. I really don't. We got a lot to cover. But that's next week, though. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and you're role-playing history.